book two chapter twelve of on the ends of good and evil by cicero translated by harris rackham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards whereas epicurus if in saying that pleasure was the primary object of attraction he meant pleasure in the sense of aristippus ought to have maintained the same ultimate good as aristippus or if he made pleasure in the sense of hieronymus his chief good should he at the same time have allowed himself to make the former kind of pleasure that of aristippus the primary attraction the fact is that when he says that the verdict of the senses themselves decides pleasure to be good and pain evil he assigns more authority to the senses than the law allows to us when we sit as judges in private suits we cannot decide any issue not within our jurisdiction and there is not really any point in the proviso which judges are fond of adding to their verdicts if it be a matter within my jurisdiction for if it were not within their jurisdiction the verdict would be equally invalid were the proviso omitted what does come under the verdict of the senses sweetness sourness smoothness roughness proximity distance whether an object is stationary or moving square or round a just decision can therefore only be delivered by reason with the aid in the first place of that knowledge of things human and divine which may rightly claim the title of wisdom and secondly with the assistance of the virtues which reason would have to be the mistresses of all things but you considered as the handmaids and subordinates of the pleasures after calling all of these into counsel she will pronounce first as to pleasure that she has no claim not merely to be enthroned alone in the seat of that chief good which we are seeking but even to be admitted as the associate of moral worth as regards freedom from pain her decision will be the same for carneades will be put out of court and no theory of the chief good will be approved that either includes pleasure or absence of pain or does not include moral worth two views will thus be left after prolonged consideration of these either her final verdict will be that there is no good but moral worth and no evil but moral baseness all other things being either entirely unimportant or of so little importance that they are not desirable or to be avoided but only to be selected or rejected or else she will prefer the theory which she will recognize as including the full beauty of moral worth enriched by the addition of the primary natural objects and of a life completed to its perfect span and her judgment will be all the clearer if she can first of all settle whether the dispute between these rival theories is one of fact or turns on verbal differences only chapter thirteen guided by the authority of reason i will now adopt a similar procedure myself as far as possible i will narrow the issue and will assume that all those theories of the simple type that include no admixture of virtue are to be eliminated from philosophy altogether first among these comes the system of aristippus and the cyrenaic school in general who did not shrink from finding their chief good in pleasure of the sort that excites the highest amount of actively agreeable sensation 
and who despised your freedom from pain. They failed to see that, just as the horse is designed by nature for running, the ox for ploughing, and the dog for hunting, so man, as Aristotle observes, is born for two purposes, thought and action. He is, as it were, a mortal god. The Cyrenaics held, on the contrary, that this godlike animal came into being like some dull, half-witted sheep, in order to feed and to enjoy the pleasure of procreation, a view that seems to me the climax of absurdity. So much in answer to Aristippus, who considers pleasure in the only sense in which we all of us employ the term, to be not merely the highest, but the sole pleasure that exists. Your school holds a different view. However, as I said, Aristippus is wrong. Neither man's bodily conformation nor his surpassing mental faculty of reason indicates that he was born for the sole purpose of enjoying pleasure. Nor yet can we listen to Hieronymus, whose chief good is the same as is occasionally, or rather only too frequently, upheld by yourselves. Freedom from pain. If pain is an evil, to be without this evil is not enough to constitute the good life. Let Aeneas say, if he likes, that enough and more of good is his who hath no ill. But let us reckon happiness not by the avoidance of evil, but by the attainment of good. Let us seek it not in the idle acceptance, whether of positive delights, like Aristippus, or of freedom from pain, like Hieronymus, but in a life of action, or of study. The same arguments can be urged against the chief good of Carneades, which he advanced, less from a desire to prove it true, than to use it as a weapon in his battle with the Stoics. Though it is such, that if added to virtue it may be thought to be of importance, and to be likely to augment the sum total of happiness, which is the one subject of our inquiry. Whereas those who join with virtue either pleasure, the one thing she values least, or freedom from pain, which, even though it is devoid of evil, yet is not the chief good, make a less satisfactory combination. Nor yet can I understand why they go to work in so cautious and niggardly a fashion. You would think they had to purchase the commodity which is to be added to virtue. To begin with, they choose the cheapest things they can find to add, and then they each stole out one only, instead of coupling with moral worth all the things initially approved by nature. Aristo and Pyrrho thought all these things utterly worthless, and said, for example, that there was absolutely nothing to choose between the most perfect health and the most grievous sickness, and, consequently, men have long ago quite rightly given up arguing against them. For in insisting upon the unique importance of virtue in such a sense as to rob it of any power of choice among external things, and to deny it any starting point or basis, they destroy the very virtue they desired to cherish. Again, Erelus, in basing everything on knowledge, fixed his eyes on one definite good, but this not the greatest good, nor one that could serve as the guide of life. Accordingly, Erelus himself has long ago been set aside. Since Chrysippus, no one has even troubled to refute him. Chapter 14 Accordingly, your school remains, for there is no coming to grips with the academics who affirm nothing positively 
and despairing of a knowledge of certain truths make up their minds to take apparent probability as their guide epicurus however is a more troublesome opponent because he is a combination of two different sorts of pleasure and because besides himself and his friends there have been so many later champions of his theory which somehow or other enlists the support of that least competent but most powerful adherent the general public unless we refute these adversaries all virtue all honour all true merit must be abandoned thus when all the other systems have been discarded there remains a duel in which the combatants are not myself and torquatus but virtue and pleasure this contest is by no means ignored by so penetrating and so industrious a writer as chrysippus who considers that the rivalry between pleasure and virtue is the cardinal issue in the whole question of the chief good my own view is that if i can succeed in proving the existence of moral worth as a thing essentially and for itself desirable your entire system at once collapses accordingly i will begin by defining with such brevity as the occasion demands the nature of moral worth and then torquatus i will proceed to deal with each of your points unless my memory should happen to fail me by moral worth then we understand that which is of such a nature that though devoid of all utility it can justly be commended in and for itself apart from any profit or reward a formal definition such as i have given may do something to indicate its nature but this is more clearly explained by the general verdict of mankind at large and by the aims and actions of all persons of high character good men do a great many things from which they anticipate no advantage solely from the motive of propriety morality and right for among the many points of difference between man and the lower animals the greatest difference is that nature has bestowed on man the gift of reason of an active vigorous intelligence able to prosecute several trains of thought with great swiftness at the same time and having so to speak a keen scent to discern the sequence of causes and effects to draw analogies combine things separate connect the future with the present and survey the entire field of the subsequent course of life it is reason moreover that has inspired man with a relish for his kind she has produced conformity of character of language and of habit she has prompted the individual starting from friendship and from family affection to expand his interests forming social ties first with his fellow-citizens and later with all mankind she reminds him that as plato puts it in his letter to archytas man was not born for self alone but for country and for kindred claims that leave but a small part of him for himself nature has also engendered in mankind the desire of contemplating truth this is most clearly manifested in our hours of leisure when our minds are at ease we are eager to acquire knowledge even of the movements of the heavenly bodies this primary instinct leads us on to love all truth as such that is all that is trustworthy simple and consistent and to hate things insincere false and deceptive such as cheating perjury malice and injustice further reason possesses an intrinsic element of dignity and grandeur suited 
rather to require obedience than to render it esteeming all the accidents of human fortunes not merely as endurable but also as unimportant a quality of loftiness and elevation fearing nothing submitting to no one ever unsubdued these three kinds of moral goodness being noted there follows a fourth kind possessed of equal beauty and indeed combining in itself the other three this is the principle of order and of restraint from recognizing something analogous to this principle in the beauty and dignity of outward forms we pass to beauty in the moral sphere of speech and conduct each of the three excellences mentioned before contributes something to this fourth one it dreads rashness it shrinks from injuring any one by wanton word or deed and it fears to do or say anything that may appear unmanly chapter fifteen there torquatus is a full detailed and complete account of moral worth a whole of which these four virtues which you also mentioned constitute the parts yet your epicurus tells us that he is utterly at a loss to know what nature or qualities are assigned to this morality by those who make it the measure of the chief good for if morality be the standard to which all things are referred while yet they will not allow that pleasure forms any part of it he declares that they are uttering sounds devoid of sense those are his actual words and that he has no notion or perception whatever of any meaning that this term morality can have attached to it in common parlance moral honourable means merely that which ranks high in popular esteem and popular esteem says epicurus though often in itself more agreeable than certain forms of pleasure yet is desired simply as a means to pleasure do you realize how vast a difference of opinion this is here is a famous philosopher whose influence has spread not only over greece and italy but throughout all barbarian lands as well protesting that he cannot understand what moral worth is if it does not consist in pleasure unless indeed it be that which wins the approval and applause of the multitude for my part i hold that what is popular is often positively base and that if ever it is not base this is only when the multitude happens to applaud something that is right and praiseworthy in and for itself which even so is not called moral honourable because it is widely applauded but because it is of such a nature that even if men were unaware of its existence or never spoke of it it would still be worthy of praise for its own beauty and loveliness hence epicurus is compelled by the irresistible force of instinct to say in another passage what you also said just now that it is impossible to live pleasantly without also living morally honourably what does he mean by morally now the same as pleasantly if so does it amount to saying that it is impossible to live morally unless you live morally or unless you make public opinion your standard he means then that he cannot live pleasantly without the approval of public opinion but what can be baser than to make the conduct of the wise man depend upon the gossip of the foolish what therefore does he understand by moral in this passage clearly nothing but that which can be rightly praised for its own sake for if it be praised as being a means to pleasure what is there creditable about this 
you can get pleasure at the provision dealers no epicurus who esteems moral worth so highly as to say that it is impossible to live pleasantly without it is not the man to identify moral honourable with popular and maintain that it is impossible to live pleasantly without popular esteem he cannot understand moral to mean anything else than that which is right that which is in and for itself independently intrinsically and of its own nature praiseworthy chapter sixteen this torquatus accounts for the glow of pride with which as i noticed you informed us how loudly epicurus proclaims the impossibility of living pleasantly without living morally wisely and justly your words derived potency from the grandeur of the things that they denoted you drew yourself up to your full height and kept stopping and fixing us with your gaze and solemnly asseverating that epicurus does occasionally commend morality and justice were those names never mentioned by philosophers we should have no use for philosophy how well they sounded on your lips too seldom does epicurus speak to us of wisdom courage justice temperance yet it is the love that those great names inspire which has lured the ablest of mankind to devote themselves to philosophical studies the sense of sight says plato is the keenest sense we possess yet our eyes cannot behold wisdom could we see her what passionate love would she awaken and why is this so is it because of her supreme ability and cunning in the art of contriving pleasures why is justice commended what gave rise to the old familiar saying a man with whom you might play odd and even in the dark this proverb strictly applies to the particular case of honesty but it has this general application that in all our conduct we should be influenced by the character of the action not by the presence or absence of a witness how weak and ineffectual are the deterrents you put forward the torture of a guilty conscience and the fear of the punishment that offenders incur or at all events stand in continual dread of incurring in the end we must not picture our unprincipled man as a poor-spirited coward tormenting himself about his past misdeeds and afraid of everything but as shrewdly calculating profit in all he does sharp dexterous a practised hand fertile in devices for cheating in secret without witness or accomplice don't suppose i am speaking of a lucius tubulus who when he sat as praetor to try charges of murder made so little concealment of taking bribes for his verdict that next year the tribune of the plebs publius scaevola moved in the plebeian assembly for a special inquiry the bill passed the plebs and the senate commissioned the consul gnaeus caepio to hold the investigation but tubulus promptly left the country and did not venture to stand his trial so open was his guilt chapter seventeen it is not therefore a question of a rascal merely but of a crafty rascal like quintus pompeius when he disowned the treaty he had made with the numantines nor yet of a timid cowardly knave but of one who to begin with is deaf to the voice of conscience which it is assuredly no difficult matter to stifle the man we call stealthy and secret so far from betraying his own guilt 
will actually make believe to be indignant at the knavery of another that is what we mean by a cunning old hand i remember assisting at a consultation which publius sextilius rufus held with his friends on the following matter he had been left heir to quintus fadius gallus fadius's will contained a statement that he had requested sextilius to allow the whole of the estate to pass to his daughter sextilius now denied the arrangement as he could do with impunity for there was no one to rebut him not one of us believed his denial it was more probable that he should be lying as his pocket was concerned than the testator who had left it in writing that he had made a request which it had been his duty to make sextilius actually went on to say that having sworn to maintain the waconian law he would not venture to break it unless his friends thought he ought to do so i was only a young man but many of the company were persons of high consideration and every one of these advised him not to give fadia more than she was entitled to get under the waconian law sextilius kept a handsome property not a penny of which he would have touched had he followed the advice of those who placed honour and right above all considerations of profit and advantage do you therefore suppose that he was afterwards troubled by remorse not a bit of it on the contrary the inheritance made him a rich man and he was thoroughly pleased with himself in consequence he thought he had scored heavily he had won a fortune not only by no illegal means but actually by the aid of the law and according to your school it is right to try to get money even at some risk for money procures many very delightful pleasures therefore just as those who hold that things right and honourable are desirable for their own sake must often take risks in the cause of honour and morality so epicureans who measure all things by pleasure may properly take risks in order to obtain considerable pleasures if a large sum of money or a great inheritance is at stake inasmuch as money buys a vast number of pleasures your epicurus if he wishes to attain his own end of goods will have to act as scipio did when he had the chance of winning great renown by enticing hannibal back to africa to do so he risked enormous dangers for honour and not pleasure was the aim of that great enterprise similarly your epicurean wise man when stirred by the prospect of some considerable gain will fight to the death if need be and with good reason do circumstances allow his crime to go undetected so much the better but if found out he will make light of every penalty for he will have been schooled to make light of death of exile even of pain itself the latter indeed you make out to be unendurable when you are enacting penalties for the wicked but easy to bear when you are maintaining that the wise man will always command a preponderance of good chapter eighteen but suppose that our evildoer is not only clever but also supremely powerful as was marcus crassus who however was mostly content to rely on his private resources or like our friend pompeius at the present time who deserves our gratitude for his upright conduct since he might be as unjust as he liked with impunity but how many unrighteous acts are possible which no one would be in a position to censure 
if a friend of yours requests you on his deathbed to hand over his estate to his daughter without leaving his intention anywhere in writing as fadius did or speaking of it to anybody what will you do you no doubt will hand over the money perhaps epicurus himself would have done the same as did sextus paducaius son of sextus a scholar and a gentleman of scrupulous honour who left behind him a son our friend of to-day to recall his father's culture and integrity no one knew that a similar request had been made to sextus by a distinguished roman knight named gaius plodius of nursia but sextus of his own accord went to plodius's widow informed her much to her surprise of her husband's commission and handed over the property to her but the question i want to put to you is this since you yourself would undoubtedly have done the same do you not see that the force of natural instinct is all the more firmly established by the fact that even you epicureans who profess to make your own interest and pleasure your sole standard nevertheless perform actions that prove you to be really aiming not at pleasure but at duty prove i say that the natural impulse towards right is more powerful than corrupt reason suppose says carneades you should know that there is a viper lurking somewhere and that some one by whose death you stand to profit is about to sit down on it unawares then you will do a wicked deed if you do not warn him not to sit down but still your wickedness would go unpunished for who could possibly prove that you knew however i labour the point unnecessarily it is obvious that if fair dealing honesty and justice have not their source in nature and if all these things are only valuable for their utility no good man can anywhere be found the subject is fully discussed by lilius in my volumes on the state chapter nineteen apply the same test to temperance or moderation which means the control of the appetites in obedience to the reason suppose a man yields to vicious impulses in secret is that no offence against purity or is it not true that an act can be sinful in itself even though no disgrace attends it and again does a brave soldier go into battle and shed his blood for his country upon a nice calculation of the balance of pleasures or in hot blood and under the stimulus of impulse come torquatus if the great imperiosus were listening to our debate which of our two speeches about himself would he have heard with greater satisfaction yours or mine me declaring that no deed of his was done for selfish ends but all from motives of patriotism or you maintaining that he acted solely for self and suppose you had wanted to make your meaning clearer and had said more explicitly that all his actions were prompted by desire for pleasure pray how do you imagine he would have taken it but grant your view assume if you like that torquatus acted for his own advantage i would sooner put it in that way than say for his own pleasure especially in the case of so great a man yet what about his colleague publius decius the first of his family to be consul when decius vowed himself to death and setting spurs to his horse was charging into the thickest of the latin ranks surely he had no thought of personal pleasure pleasure where to be enjoyed or when for he knew he must die in a moment ay and he courted death with more passionate ardour 
than epicurus would have us seek pleasure had not his exploit earned renown it would not have been imitated by his son in his fourth consulship nor would the latter's son again commanding as consul in the war with pyrrhus have also fallen in battle third in succession of his line to give himself a victim for the state i refrain from further instances the greeks have but a modest list leonidas epaminondas some three or four but were i to begin to cite the heroes of our race i should doubtless succeed in making pleasure yield herself prisoner to virtue but daylight would fail before i had done aulus varius noted for his severity as a judge used to say to his colleague on the bench when after witnesses had been produced still further witnesses were called either we have evidence enough already or i do not know what evidence can be enough well i have cited witnesses enough why you yourself in every way a worthy scion of your stock was pleasure the inducement that led you a mere youth to wrest the consulship from publius sulla you won that office for your gallant father and what a consul he was what a patriot all his life long and more especially after his consulship it was with his support that i carried through an affair which was for all men's interest rather than my own but how well you thought you put your case when you pictured on the one hand a person loaded with an abundance of the most delightful pleasures and free from all pain whether present or in prospect and on the other when racked throughout his frame by the most excruciating pains unqualified by any pleasure or hope of pleasure then proceeded to ask who could be more wretched than the latter or more happy than the former and finally drew the conclusion that pain was the chief evil and pleasure the chief good chapter twenty well there was a certain lucius thorius of lenuium whom you cannot remember he lived on the principle of enjoying in the fullest measure all the most exquisite pleasures that could possibly be found his appetite for pleasures was only equalled by his taste and ingenuity in devising them he was so devoid of superstition as to scoff at all the sacrifices and shrines for which his native place is famous and so free from fear of death that he died in battle for his country epicurus's classification of the desires meant nothing to him he knew no limit but satiety at the same time he was careful of his health took sufficient exercise to come hungry and thirsty to table ate what was at once most appetizing and most digestible drank enough wine for pleasure and not too much for health nor did he forego those other indulgences in the absence of which epicurus declares that he cannot understand what good is pain he never experienced at all had it come to him he would have borne it with fortitude yet would have called in a doctor sooner than a philosopher he had excellent health and a sound constitution he was extremely popular in short his life was replete with pleasure of every variety your school pronounces him a happy man at least your theory requires you to do so but i place above him i do not venture to say whom virtue herself shall speak for me and she will not hesitate to rank marcus regulus higher than this typically happy man as you would call him 
regulus of his own free will and under no compulsion except that of a promise given to an enemy returned from his native land to carthage yet virtue proclaims that when he had done so he was happier while tormented with sleeplessness and hunger than thorius carousing on his couch of roses regulus had fought great wars had twice been consul had celebrated a triumph yet all his earlier exploits he counted less great and glorious than that final disaster which he chose to undergo for the sake of honour and of loyalty a pitiable end as it seems to us who hear of it but full of pleasure for him who endured it gaiety and merriment laughter and jesting those comrades of frivolity are not the only signs of happiness often in sadness those are happy whose wills are strong and true lucretia outraged by the royal prince called on her fellow-citizens to witness her wrong and died by her own hand the indignation that this aroused in the roman people under the leadership and guidance of brutus won freedom for the state and in gratitude to lucretia's memory both her husband and her father were made consuls for the first year of the republic sixty years after our liberties had been won lucius Varginius, a poor man of humble station killed his maiden daughter with his own hand rather than surrender her to the lust of appius claudius who then held the highest power in the state chapter twenty one either torquatus you must reprobate these actions or you must give up your championship of pleasure but what defence can pleasure offer what case can you make out for her when she will be able to produce no famous men as her witnesses or supporters on our side we cite in evidence from our records and our annals men who spent their whole lives in glorious toils men who would not have borne to hear pleasure so much as named but in your discourses history is dumb in the school of epicurus i never heard one mention of lycurgus solon miltiades themistocles epaminondus who are always on the lips of the other philosophers and now that we romans too have begun to treat of these themes what a marvellous role of great men will our friend atticus supply to us from his storehouses of learning would it not be better to talk of these than to devote those bulky volumes to themista let us leave that sort of thing to the greeks true we owe to them philosophy and all the liberal sciences yet there are topics not permitted to us that are allowable for them battle rages between the stoics and the peripatetics one school declares that nothing is good but moral worth the other that while it assigns the greatest and by far the greatest value to morality yet still some bodily and external things are good here is an honourable quarrel fought out in high debate for the whole dispute turns on the true worth of virtue but when one argues with your friends one has to listen to a great deal about even the grosser forms of pleasure epicurus is always harping upon them believe me then torquatus if you will but look within and study your own thoughts and inclinations you cannot continue to defend the doctrines you profess you will be put to the blush i say by the picture that cleanthes used to draw so cleverly in his lectures he would tell his audience to imagine a painting representing pleasure decked as a queen and gorgeously apparelled 
seated on a throne at her side should stand the virtues as her handmaids who should make it their sole object and duty to minister to pleasure merely whispering in her ear the warning provided this could be conveyed by the painter's art to beware of unwittingly doing aught to offend public opinion or anything from which pain might result as for us virtues we were born to be your slaves that is our one and only business chapter twenty two but you will tell me your great luminary epicurus denies that any one who does not live morally can live pleasantly as if i cared what epicurus says or denies what i ask is what is it consistent for a man to say who places the chief good in pleasure what reason can you give for thinking that thorius or posthumius of chios or the master of them all orata did not live extremely pleasant lives epicurus himself says that the life of sensualists is blameless if they are not utter fools for that is what his proviso if they are free from fear and from desire amounts to and as he offers an antidote for both desire and fear he virtually offers free indulgence for sensuality eliminate those passions he says and he cannot find anything to blame in a life of profligacy consequently you epicureans by taking pleasure as the sole guide make it impossible for yourselves either to uphold or to retain virtue for a man is not to be thought good and just who refrains from doing wrong to avoid incurring harm no doubt you know the line none is good whose love of goodness believe me nothing can be truer as long as his motive is fear he is not just and assuredly as soon as he ceases to fear he will not be just and he will not feel fear if he can conceal his wrongdoing or is sufficiently powerful to brazen it out and he will assuredly prefer the reputation without the reality of goodness to the reality without the reputation so your school undoubtedly preaches the pretense of justice instead of the real and genuine thing its lesson amounts to this we are to despise the trustworthy voice of our own conscience and to run after the fallible imaginations of other men the same applies in the case of the other virtues basing them entirely on pleasure you are laying their foundations in water why take the great torquatus again can he really be called brave for i delight albeit my flattery as you put it is powerless to bribe you i delight i say in your name and lineage and indeed i have personal recollections of that distinguished man aulus torquatus who was an affectionate friend of my own and whose signal loyalty and devotion to me in circumstances that are within universal knowledge must be familiar to you both yet for my part anxious as i am to feel and show a proper gratitude i would not have thanked him for his friendship had i not known that it was disinterested unless you choose to say that it was for his own interest in the sense that it is to every man's interest to act rightly if you do say so we have won our case for our one principle our one contention is that duty is its own reward this your great master does not allow he expects everything to pay to yield its quota of pleasure but i return to old torquatus 
if it was to win pleasure that he accepted the gallic warrior's challenge to single combat on the banks of the anio and if he despoiled him and assumed his necklet and the corresponding surname for any other reason than that he thought such deeds became a man i do not consider him brave again if modesty self-control chastity if in a word temperance is to depend for its sanction on the fear of punishment or of disgrace and not to maintain itself by its own intrinsic sacredness what form of adultery vice or lust will not break loose and run riot when it is assured of concealment impunity or indulgence or what pray are we to think of the situation if you torquatus bearing the name you do and gifted and distinguished as you are dare not profess before a public audience the real object of all your actions aims and endeavours the motive that inspires you to accomplish your undertakings what it is in short that you consider the greatest good in life in return for what payment or consideration when not long hence you have attained to public office and come forward to address a meeting for you will have to announce the rules that you propose to observe in administering justice and very likely also if you think good you will follow the time-honoured custom of making some reference to your ancestors and to yourself for what consideration then would you consent to declare that you intend in office to guide your conduct solely by pleasure and that pleasure has been your aim in every action of your life do you take me for such an imbecile you exclaim as to talk in that fashion before ignorant people well make the same profession in a law court or if you are afraid of the public there say it in the senate you will never do it why not unless because such language is disgraceful then what a compliment to torquatus and myself to use it in our presence end of chapter twenty two of book two recording in memory of mitchell edwards